in Homer's epic tale, the Iliad, Paris, Prince of Troy, and Helen of Sparta become engaged in a sexual relationship in spite of the fact that she's married to Menelaus, who's the king of Sparta. This tryst becomes the fuel for the legendary Trojan War in which the Spartans laid siege to the city of Troy for over a decade in the 12th century BC. It's a legendary story, this forbidden love between Paris and Helen, and it's been fuel for romanticized depictions of marital infidelity ever since. For example, the 2004 movie Troy features a softly pornographic scene glamorizing the first illicit encounter between Paris and Helen. And then the movie continues to glamorize the relationship throughout. In our culture here in Barbados, marital infidelity and the oft-accompanying sexual promiscuity has been likewise normalized and glamorized. From the multitude of Bajan men with multiple children from different women to the debauchery of Kaduman Day, Barbados has normalized and glamorized marital infidelity. It's not just the ancient Greeks, it's not just Hollywood, but it's right here at home. Too many men think it's love when they can't stop thinking about a woman they're not married to. And too many women think that it's love when a man she's not married to can't seem to take his eyes or his hands off her. And all of this is in spite of the facts that sexual relationships outside of marriage are well documented as contributing to major systemic sociological problems. And worse, sexual relationships outside of marriage are an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. So in other words, it's not just that it's incorrect, it's that it's actually very bad. But nevertheless, we do this. We glamorize these types of Trysts and flings and engagements and rendezvous that are not only sociologically destructive, but bring on the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3 says, Sexual immorality must not even be named among you, that is Christians. Among you, another translation has it, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Or later on, Just a couple verses after that in Ephesians 5. You may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes. The biblical sexual ethic is simple. Here it is. Sex is wonderful. Sex is a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful gift from God. But it belongs only in a marriage between one man and one woman. That's the biblical sexual ethic. Very, very simple. Just like fire is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. But not so much when it occurs outside of its intended boundaries. So, sex is a wonderful thing. But not so much 
when it occurs outside of its intended boundaries. So God commands us, you shall not commit adultery. And as it is with the other commands, this prohibits all sins in the same category. Fornication, lust, pornography, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, you name it. The biblical sexual ethic is simple. One man and one woman. Married. Sex is a wonderful thing. Outside of that, it's wrong. Everything in that category. Just like the other commands, also a positive duty is implied. Love your spouse if you have one. Be faithful to him. Be faithful to her if you're married. Love your future spouse if you're not yet married but you're hoping to be. And encourage married couples in their faithfulness to one another if you're single indefinitely for whatever reason. In other words, as we read earlier in the service, this is the positive duty that is commanded here. Let marriage be held in honor by all. If you're married, honor marriage. If you're not yet married, honor marriage. If you've been married before but you're not married now for whatever reason, honor marriage. If you're planning to be single, you've chosen celibacy to the Lord, honor marriage. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Respect these serious and weighty vows that a man and a woman make to one another in marriage. This is what is commanded in the seventh commandment. Let marriage be held in honor by all. This is because God's law is love. Remember that. The Ten Commandments are a further delineation of simply the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That, those two commandments sum up everything that God wants from you. The Ten Commandments delineated a little bit further. The first four commandments pertain to what does it look like to love God, and the last six commandments speak to what does it look like to love your neighbor. And breaking the biggest promises you can make to another person is not love. Or refusing to make the biggest promises that you can make to another person well, using them for your sexual gratification is not love. Love, as it pertains to sexuality, love is making and keeping big promises to be loyal and faithful and committed and to give oneself continually for the good of another, body and soul. So God says you shall not commit adultery or implicitly let marriage be held in honor by all. If a husband doesn't hold his marriage in honor, that's not love. Which means it's breaking God's law. If a wife doesn't hold her marriage in honor, that's not love. So it's breaking God's law. When a man breaks the biggest promises that he can make to another human being, that's not love. When a woman breaks the biggest promises that she can make to another human being, that's not love. When he or she wants to sleep with you, but won't make these big promises, that's not love. 
So let marriage be held in honor. This is what's commanded here at a basic level. Let's consider further our duty. Then let's consider our rationale, the rationale that the Scripture gives us for this duty. And then let's consider, thirdly, Christ's commitment to His bride. We're getting a little bit more into it, into our duty here. Speaking first to married persons. Be faithful. Be faithful. Adultery is unfaithfulness. Do the opposite. Be faithful. There was an older man. Some of you here would know him. His name is Roy Tibbet. He's a translator with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, he once said something to me that has always stuck with me. He said, unfaithfulness begins long before you hop into bed with somebody else. That's always stuck with me. His point is that you stop being faithful in other things, smaller things, before you stop being faithful in those big things. His point was that, as uh, somebody quoted to me recently, I think John MacArthur said, when a Christian falls, he doesn't fall far. In other words, we see, we see it, we hear about a Christian falling into sin. But before they fall into some grievous, scandalous sin that becomes the talk of the town, they've already taken many, many, many smaller steps in that direction. So it's not, it's not like out of the blue, this guy who's walking so closely with the Lord, loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, just treasuring the things of God, soaking up biblical truth every morning, praying on his knees in humility before the Lord, crying out for the Lord's sustaining grace and strength in his life, averting his eyes when he's tempted to look lustfully at a woman, refusing to be alone with a woman in, in which emotional heartstrings could become attached and so on and so forth. He's living like this right on the straight and narrow. And whoa, all of a sudden he committed adultery. What happened? Before he gets there, a lot of things have happened along the way and he stopped being faithful in a lot of things along the way, right? Or the same could be said about financial scandals or whatever, but this morning, sex is in view, so that's what we're talking about. Unfaithfulness starts long before you hop into bed with somebody else. So be faithful. Do the things you should be doing. Refuse to be unfaithful even in the little things. Obviously, this means no sleeping with other persons, but also it means no pornography. Pornography is a huge problem. A massive, 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 massive problem right now. And I think that it is a bigger problem than it has been in previous generations. What I don't mean by that is that the human heart is more wicked than it has been in previous generations. But the ease of access that we have to explicit sexual material is unprecedented. And there are physiological effects to looking at this type of thing over and over and over and over. You actually begin to rewire the way you think and the way that you feel attraction and interest 
in both the pornography and your spouse. Those things actually change through the habitual use of these things. Which means that the further you go down that path, the harder that it is to turn around. And what I think has happened is that the internet has caught this generation by surprise. Or these couple generations by surprise. That, like, it's hard to believe, but... Our great-grandparents lived in a, in a world before cars and planes, right? And then all of a sudden the internet comes along, which is like rocket science. I had a great aunt who was born in 1901, and she died in 2007, Think about the change that she saw in her lifetime. She was like less than 10 years old when the Ford Model T was invented. Right? We used to go visit her. We would drive from Kingston to Toronto in Canada, which is about two hours away. And what we would do was there was a corner store, a little supermarket near her house. And what we would do, there was a payphone there. We would stop and we would phone her and we would say, Aunt Mabel, we're about five minutes away. And so she would come to her door and she would open it and let us in. Then my dad got a cell phone. And we didn't stop at the corner store. We showed up at her house. And she was a little bit hard of hearing so she couldn't hear the doorbell. So my dad phoned her with the cell phone. And she said, you're five minutes away? And he said, no, we're at your house. And she said, but there's no phone on my front porch. The internet came out of nowhere. When you think about just how, what an advance of technology that is. Right? 50 years ago, if you wanted to look at pornography, you had to actually physically go somewhere and look at someone and let them see you. And there's the, the social awkwardness of walking into a place that sells this kind of thing or going over to the shelf where this kind of thing is and putting it down and paying your money and so on and so forth. But now you can look at it on your cell phone. So, I'm not trying to say this to excuse what's happened, but I, I am trying to say it, I think it's a little bit like an outbreak. Like a disease that has really wildly infected many, many people in our society. And we got to get this under control. More on that later. But, suffice it to say... Married persons and non-married persons, which we're going to revisit in a moment. No pornography. But no lust even. Not only is it just don't outwardly do this. Don't, don't search for these things on your computer or on your phone. But no lust. Thomas Watson says, To have a chaste body but an unclean soul is like having a pretty face but bad lungs. No lust even. Purity all the way down into the heart. This is what we need to be aiming at. We've got to be dealing with sexual sin at the level of the heart. Not just at the level of our technology. Or not just at the level of our actual encounters and engagement with other human beings. But even right at the level of the heart, we've got to be dealing with this. And no emotional infidelity. When we think about adultery, we typically think of sex. But emotional infidelity is also being unfaithful to our spouse. 
it's not it's giving to someone else what belongs to our spouse. And often the emotional infidelity leads to the sexual infidelity. So again, when we think about this, be faithful. The opposite of unfaithfulness and adultery is faithfulness. Give to your spouse what is hers or what is his. Cultivate intimacy with your spouse. Initiate or respond to meaningful conversations. Don't, don't settle for coexisting with your spouse. Work on your marriage. Maybe it's not where it should be. Maybe it's not where it used to be. Work on it. Don't just go further and further down the path of unfaithfulness, continuing to not be faithful. If you recognize that you're not faithfully giving yourself to your spouse, or that your marriage has drifted and you're not be, no longer being faithful to one another, repent and try to be faithful. Initiate and respond to sexual advances. Give yourselves not only soul but body to one another. This is what the scripture actually explicitly requires of married persons is to give ourselves to one another, body and soul. This is what faithfulness really looks like. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about the bullseye. I'm talking about what we should be aiming at. But I recognize that there can be a lot of hurt. There can be a lot of difficulty in a marriage that makes it very difficult to initiate or to respond to a conversation, let alone a sexual advance. Couples can get themselves into a, into a situation where they're, they're dealing with a lot of pain and trying to get back there or trying to be obedient to some of these things that the Scripture requires might be a long road. So I want to say this. Members of this church, if you're realizing the bullseye that God's telling you to aim at and you want to work there, work towards that, but you're not sure where to begin, come and talk to me. We'll work through it. We'll talk through it graciously and compassionately and biblically and I'll try to help you move forward non-members I want to say this first join a church and then do the same thing talk to your pastors about it whether here or elsewhere I say join a church before talking to a, a pastor because trying to talk to a pastor to solve a problem in your life outside of the local church, outside of the context of meaningful church membership, where you're loved and supported, where there's a measure of commitment and the accountability and the trust that comes along with that, I think is a little bit like trying to learn a musical instrument by talking to a musician on the phone. Is that it's kind of helpful, but kind of not helpful. And there's a context within which it works best to learn a musical instrument and there's a context in which it works best to deal with sin issues in your life and the context in which it works best is church membership so whether here at Covenant we'd be happy to talk with you about church membership or whether elsewhere in another church join a church where you'll be loved where you'll be encouraged where you have the, the safety of a gracious community of people that love you and actually care about you and actually want you to thrive where, there, where there's 
support, where there is accountability, where there are people who actually know you well enough to have the conversations that need to be had to help you move forward in your life. Again, to press the analogy a little bit, a little bit further, you can tell the musician on the other end of the phone that your practice is coming along great. And they don't know any better because they're on the other end of their phone. But when you sit down in the same room and they hear you, then they can say, well, you need to work a little bit more on this. Or you need to work a little bit more on that. Church membership gives us a context where our inflated view of ourselves can be challenged. And that's actually helpful. Where you might, you might say, well, I don't have an anger problem. But your brothers or sisters in the church can know you well enough to say, well, actually, you do. Right? Or, yeah, it's great. Our marriage is healthy. And your brothers or sisters in the church can know you well enough to say, well, actually, it's not. And that's uncomfortable. And that's unpleasant, which I think is one big reason why a lot of people avoid church membership. But at the end of the day, do you want to take up your cross and deny yourself daily and follow Christ? Do you want to live for His glory? Do you want to be holy? If you do, there's a context in which that happens best. And it's church membership. So, I want to be sensitive to the struggles that can happen in marriage. Even as I paint a picture of what we should be aiming at, I want to be sensitive that it's not easy, especially if you've been... If you're in a struggling marriage, it's not easy to just go home and do it. So, I want to let you know that we are here and available and ready to help and care for you and to care for your marriage. Now, non-married persons, let me speak firstly to singles hoping or planning to be married. Let me say this, love your future spouse. might sound weird to think in those terms, but you may not know who you're going to marry, but love them right now. Love them right now. And here's some ways you can do that. Stop your pornography habit. Again, we, we touched on that and I said we revisit it. Here's where we're going to revisit it. Stop your pornography habit, men and women. I'm talking to singles right now, but this goes for marrieds who are looking at porn. Stop your pornography habit. You've got to, you've got to it is really so destructive. Here's some ways to stop it. Proverbs 5.8 says, Don't even go near the door of the forbidden woman's house. What that means, like back in the day, right, there was no pornography. There's the town prostitute or the town whore. Don't go near her house. Don't tell yourself, well, I'm just going to take a little shortcut home today. You know, I'm not going to go in, but I'm just going to walk by. Don't do that. Be careful. Don't put yourself in bad situations. So think, think about your eyes. Genesis 3 and verse 6. The woman saw the fruit and she ate. She saw that it was good. It was a delight to the eyes. And she ate. Job 31 verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. The eyes is so often the doorway that these things enter into our hearts through. So be careful what you put before your eyes. In our culture, where this is 
rampant. You may need to, to take measures that appear prudish to the unbelievers around you, to the unregenerate people around you. I'm, I might be exaggerating. I might be exaggerating when, when I say that, like, in my opinion, there's like dozens of movies that are appropriate for Christians to watch. Dozens. Not hundreds, not thousands, dozens. Like, our, our culture is wicked. It is so perverse. And we're kidding ourselves if we tell ourselves otherwise. We need to be careful about what we're putting into our minds. When it comes to this issue of lust, our culture is like, well, there's just one nude scene, but it's brief. So it's okay to briefly look at a naked person you're not married to? Be careful here. I mentioned the movie Troy at the beginning. Don't watch movies like Troy. Game of Thrones. Right? Think like there are things that are out there that are just acceptable and people in our culture are like, yeah, well, why wouldn't you watch it? Well, why wouldn't you watch it? Because it's full of sin. It's putting things in front of your eyes that are dangerous to your soul. Be careful. Don't go near the door of her house. Another thing would be like wise computer use or wise cell phone use. If you got if you got a pornography problem, don't take your computer into your bedroom or something like that. Right? Don't use it. You should use it in a public place. Just take a simple measure like that. Again, be careful. Don't go near the door of her house. This would be some 21st century applications of Proverbs 5.8. Don't go near the door of her house. Don't, don't tell yourself, well, I'm going to go only this far, but no further. Don't even go that far. Just be careful. Steer clear. Take a wide path around. If you saw a dog that looked vicious and mean and whatever on the side of the road, well, you might turn into the next gap and go around another block and then come back on the road later. You're not going to tell yourself, well, I'm not going to go in its mouth. <laughs> right? You're going to take a wide path around. Sin is more dangerous than a vicious dog. Take a wide berth around it. Wilhelm Abraco says this, If an unclean thought arises in your heart, immediately shake it off as you would shake fire from your clothes. This is the way we need to start thinking about sin. I don't even want to go close to it. I want to get it off me quick. Like if my clothes catch fire, I want to put that out right away. Then practice self-control in other areas. I tried to source the quote, but I couldn't find it. I think it might have been John Flavel, but I'm not 100% sure. But someone said, He that cannot deny himself lawful things will soon find that he is unable to deny himself unlawful things. There's a lot of wisdom there. So there's nothing wrong with having another piece of cake. Or there's nothing wrong with sitting five more minutes on the couch in and of itself, etc., etc. But when you always get in the habit of doing exactly what you feel like, And you train yourself that whatever I feel like doing, I do. You're training yourself in a dangerous way. Because then when you feel like doing sinful things, 
the muscles that you need to activate to restrain yourself are weak because you're not used to restraining yourself. So practice self-control in all areas. Learn to deny yourself lawful things so that you're using the muscles, you're building the muscles that you need when the time comes to deny yourself unlawful things. And then, thirdly, and this is really the only distinctly Christian one of these three. What I mean by that is everyone, everyone can take a wide path around behaviors that they want to avoid. Christians and non-Christians alike. And Christians and non-Christians alike can practice self-control. But this is one that only Christians can do. Find greater pleasure in God. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish Presbyterian minister who wrote, who wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And if you haven't read it, you should go read it. You can find it online easily. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. But he basically talked about how sin in the heart can't just be extracted to leave a blank, empty space. Sin in the heart needs to be displaced. The way that if you have a cup full of water and you want the water out of there, there are two ways to do it. One is to dump it out. But Chalmers says you can't do that with sin. It doesn't work that way. The next thing you do is you can put in another liquid. So if you, if you start pouring in apple juice, after a while you're only going to have apple juice. No more water. Because the apple juice is going to displace the water. And what Chalmers is arguing for in his sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection, is what you've got to do is get a new affection into your heart which will expel the old one. Get something else into your heart which will displace what was there. So if you find, an, uh, as pertains to our sermon this morning, if you find sinful affections for another woman or another man or for simply sexual gratification in general so that you don't care what man or what woman it is that you're looking at, you just have to be gratified. When you find these kind of sinful desires in your heart, you can't just tell yourself, I'm going to get rid of them and then leave a blank space in your heart. It doesn't work that way. That's not how our battle against sin succeeds. What we got to do is learn to love something else more. And that something else is God. We have to cultivate a greater affection for God than for our sin. Let me tell you this, with certainty, when you love God more than your sin, or in the instance in which you love God more than your sin, you will not sin. In the instance when you love your sin more than God, you will sin. It's always a love thing. It's always an affection thing, every time. Every time. You never are like, well, I really want God, but I'm going to sin. Every time you sin, in that instance, your affections for God have become weaker than your affections for what it is that you pursue. Every time. So we need to cultivate and stoke hot affections for Christ. All the time we need to be feeding our affections 
for Christ. There's an old story, and it's not a perfect analogy of the way that our sanctification works because it goes, ro- it goes wrong about what's happening anthropologically in us. But it's still worth telling. Just don't press it too far, and I can clarify what I mean later if you want to. But there's this story of an old Indian chief who said that there are two dogs at war within him. And the, the one dog is good and loyal and wants what is right and so on and so forth. And the other dog is vicious and wants to kill and wants to cause harm and so on and so forth. And someone said, well, which dog wins? And he said, the one that I feed more. That's helpful to a point. Because we do understand that there are these warring affections within us. And when we feed our sinful affections, they get stronger. But when we starve our sinful affections and feed our affections for God, those affections get stronger. And so, on a practical level, in battling against pornography and even more generally against sexual sin as a whole, what we need to learn to do is love our God more and more. To have a stronger affection for Him than for the sin that keeps pulling us in time and again. Thomas Watson says, He that once tasted Christ is ravished with delight and how he would scorn a motion to sin. So true. Taste, brothers and sisters, and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you taste that, you don't want to taste something else. There, somebody said that uh, a wise traveler, though many pleasant dishes are set before him at the inn, forbears to taste because of the reckoning. In other words, you go into a restaurant and you see so many nice things on the menu, but you don't order them all because the bill would be too high. I would add this, that a wise traveler orders the best thing he can afford. You would, be, you would be a fool with so much money in your wallet to go and order the thing that you know to be inferior to the better thing. The thing that you know to taste not quite as good as this other thing. You're going to order the best food. Do that spiritually too. Get the best food. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And singles, here's another way to love your future spouse. Grow in Christ. Grow in Christ. Study theology. You want to, you want to get a husband or a wife? Study theology. Now, you might laugh and say, well, that doesn't really sound like the first thing that you should do if you really want to be attractive to the opposite sex. Well, if you want a godly spouse, if you want a godly spouse, get serious about knowing God. Because a godly potential spouse is going to be looking for somebody that's serious about knowing God. So you're right. If you just want, if you just want to find anyone, and find them quick, studying theology maybe not your most efficient route to go. 
but you want the right kind of spouse, start studying theology. Start to grow in orthodoxy. Start to learn what's true about God. What's true about the world we live in. What's true about ourselves. That's going to be very attractive to a godly spouse. And then grow not only in orthodoxy, which is right thinking, but orthopraxy, which is right practice. Be committed to personal Bible reading and prayer with personal application. So when you do your Bible reading and prayer, don't just be thinking about orthodoxy, but be thinking about orthopraxy. What does this mean for me? How should my life change or be shaped as a result? Pursue godly character. And then be committed to a church where your sin can be exposed and challenged. As I said earlier, this is, this is and I don't mean covenant, I mean local church membership. Could be here, could be elsewhere. But local church membership is the context in which you are best going to grow in Christ Jesus. Meaningful church membership. So, singles hoping and planning to be married, love your future spouse by joining a church. And commit yourself to growing in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Again, this is not going to be the quickest way to just find a warm body to marry, but this is going to be the best way to find a godly spouse. Because a godly young man or a godly young woman is going to be looking for a godly young man or woman to marry. So, instead of spending so much time trying to find a godly spouse, focus on becoming a godly spouse. And the rest will take care of itself in God's time. And then I would say this. There are singles who are not hoping or planning to be married for whatever reason. Perhaps widows or widowers, perhaps divorcees or perhaps celibate persons who have just, for whatever reason, whether circumstance or whether choice or whatever, are not, they're not young teenagers or 20-somethings or 30-somethings or they're not, they're not uh, widows who are hoping to remarry, which is completely legitimate. They've decided that they're not going to remarry for whatever reason. There are those who have decided to be celibate so they can pursue undivided devotion to the Lord. There are persons, in other words, who are not likely going to be married uh, at any future date. This sermon is still very relevant because remember what's commanded is let marriage be held in honor by all. And so you can help and you ought to help speak well of marriage, encourage your married brothers and sisters to honor God in their marriage. The same way as your married brothers and sisters ought to encourage you to honor God in your singleness. A church should not be a homogenous group that, it is, that rallies around life stage any more than it should be a homogenous group that rallies around anything else. Like whether it be, whether it be music style or social class or hobbies and interests or whatever. A church is supposed to be a group of persons that are connected in and through Christ Jesus. That we've all been bought with the same blood. That we've all been reconciled to the same Father. That we all have the same Spirit indwelling. That we're all on the same path of growing in Christ-likeness and helping one another get home. This is what we're doing. We're helping one another as we make our pilgrimage home. So married persons should be helping single persons make their way home in a way that honors God. 
and single persons should be helping married persons make their way home in a way that honors God. Young persons should be helping older persons make their way home in a way that honors God. And older persons should be helping younger persons make their way home in a way that honors God. This is what the church should be. And so, I would say that even if you are single and not hoping or planning to be married for whatever reason, this is still applicable in that you should also be part of that all that are holding marriage in honor and just figuring out how do we do that. So that's something further of our duty in the seventh commandment. Let's look at the rationale behind the commandment. As I said at the beginning, God's law is love. And love isn't breaking the biggest promise you can make to another person. That's not loving. Nor is love refusing to make big promises. Again, that's not loving. You talk to so many young, well, I would say especially young people, but it can happen with middle-aged and older people as well, is that you have a woman, generally it's a woman who wants to be married, but her boyfriend won't marry her. Why? And he's like, she's like, well, I know he loves me, but he just doesn't want to get married. Listen, if he's not willing to make those big promises, he doesn't love you. He loves the convenience of not making those big promises and having a foot out the door. Love is not refusing to make those promises in the first place, nor is it loving to break those promises. There was a gay couple on my street in Canada, a couple of old men who left their wives to be with one another. Motivated by love, supposedly. Listen, that's not love. You leave the woman that you made big promises to. Regardless of the reason, the reason makes it that much more abominable. But regardless of the reason, you leave the woman that you made those big promises to. That's not love. So as it pertains to our sexuality, love is making big promises and then keeping them. It's giving ourselves fully to another person. And as the vows go, forsaking all others. Giving ourselves fully to another person inside and out for the rest of our lives till death do us part. That's what love is. That's what love looks like. That's why God says, you shall not commit adultery because God is concerned that we love. That's the heart behind all of God's commandments. We we instinctually know this. Even, Even unregenerate persons, people who don't have a new heart from God in their natural state, dead in trespasses and sins, even they know this to an extent. Because they know that their bodies are not for all and sundry to enjoy sexually. So maybe they have three women on the go at once. Maybe they've had dozens of sexual partners throughout their life. But, but most people don't have sex in public. And even the most sexually promiscuous 
Again, most don't just have sex literally indiscriminately. Their standards may be low, but they still have some standards. And they still recognize that their body is not for everyone. They get that, at least at some level. And that's a remnant of God's law that is still on their heart, even though it's been marred and defaced by the fall. They get that there should be limitations of some sort to sexuality. God's law helps us in that it tells us not only are there limitations of some sort, but here are the specific limitations. Ever since the fall, our consciences are not reliable interpreters of what's right and wrong. We still, all human beings, still have some sense of right and wrong. Because God's law was written on our hearts in the beginning. But because it's been marred and defaced by the fall, it's not reliable. So someone may feel guilty about something that's not actually a sin, or they may not feel guilty about something that is. When it comes to sexual ethics, we have some sense that there are some limitations on sexuality. Almost everybody knows that. But the, God's law is helpful in that it tells us your conscience is not correct if you think that it's for this person and that person and that person. Rather, it's actually only for a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. That's what love is. That's what love looks like. Sex is only for one man and one woman. And Philip Ryken gives an apt metaphor saying that sex is like superglue. When used properly, intercourse seals the bond of matrimony. Sex properly used brings two people together that should be together and strengthens that bond. I would add that conversely, as one of my former pastors used to say, sex is like superglue. And it's like gluing two pieces of cardboard together. That if you then try to separate the cardboard, it damages both pieces. Which again is not loving. And since God's law is driving at love, the super glue of sex is to be used to stick together two people that are supposed to be together that will never be pulled apart. And it strengthens that bond that is supposed to be there. Using sex as super glue to stick two pieces of cardboard together that you're going to rip apart later is not loving. It's intentionally and willfully engaging in something that's going to be damaging to both parties. So we have to use super glue properly. We have to use sex properly. It's the only loving thing to do. That's the rationale behind the commandment. Edmund Clowney says that the Lord placed in us at creation a deep, deep sexual emotion so that we might understand the jealousy of His love for us and the joy of jealousy for Him. Or in other words, as Ephesians 5 tells us, not long after the other verses that I read at the beginning of this sermon, marriage is to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. After considering our duties and considering some of the rationale, let's consider that now. The relationship between Christ and the church, particularly Christ's commitment to His bride. The book, the book of Hosea is a beautiful 
picture of God's love for His people. God says to the prophet, Go love a prostitute. And he says, This is a picture of my love for my people. And then she leaves him and is, un- is unfaithful to him. And he says, Go and get her back. This is a picture of my love for my people. Think about that. This is what God's telling you. You're like. Yeah, He loves you anyway. He loves you through it. Think of all the times that you've been unfaithful to God. Again, even as we spoke about a few moments ago, sin is always an instance of loving something else more than God. Think of all the times you've done that. Think of all the times that you've let yourself get captivated for a few minutes or an hour or a week or a month with something other than God. So that He is put on the shelf, so to speak, and something else holds your heart. Think of all the times that you've done that. And yet God says that the new covenant is like Him coming and loving the whore. God doesn't love us because we're lovely. God doesn't love us because we're faithful to Him. God doesn't love us because we've repented thoroughly enough. God doesn't love us because our faith is strong and sure and never wavers. God doesn't love us for any merit in us. God has loved us with an everlasting love, knowing full well the whorings of our hearts. Knowing full well the infidelities into which we would run away from Him. Knowing full well the lover's arms that we would find embracing, so to speak. And yet God has said to His Son, as he said to Hosea the prophet something like this go love that unfaithful woman go love her that's us the bride of Christ we're not something to write home about we're, we're not something so praiseworthy and so admirable but our heavenly bridegroom, Christ Jesus, is. The love with which He loves us is astounding. When we come to see the depths of our sin, we come to recognize how far we've wandered or how frequently we've wandered. We look at God's law and it is to us as a mirror in which we see our sin. And then to think, Christ loves me still. What a great Savior we have. What a wonderful heavenly bridegroom we have. This can be sometimes an uncomfortable metaphor for men because, well, Christ is a man too. But we have to understand, I'm not Christ's bride. And man, you're not Christ's bride. 
but we together, men and women, boys and girls, the church, bought with the blood of Christ. We are Christ's bride. It's just a picture. And to see how Christ continues to love us over and over and over again, in spite of our unfaithfulness. It's so beautiful. So wonderful. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not out looking for God, but He came looking for us. We were gratifying the desires of the mind and the body. He came looking for us and He reconciled us to Himself. We were indulging ourselves in sin and He came to make us His own. Jesus came, lived a life of perfect righteousness in the place of us who had done nothing but unrighteousness. Yes, nothing but unrighteousness. Any supposedly good thing that you may have done before you were a Christian may have been good outwardly, but it proceeded even from the wrong heart motives. It was polluted and corrupted. And so literally everything that we had done at the time when Christ came to die for us was sin. He bore in Himself at the cross the penalty that we deserved for our sin. And then you would think, then you would think that we would be like, wow, we have been loved by someone like this. Unfathomable love. We would think that the words we sing would prove true. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And we would think that from now on we would be a faithful bride. But so quickly, so quickly we turned again to sin. Even after we came to Christ in the first place. Even after we saw that wondrous love, so quickly we turned again to sin. But then we read in the Scriptures... If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That He will have us still. We read that He predestined us in order to be holy and blameless. In order that we might be holy and blameless. Not because we were, but in order to be. Which means He's going to love us through our sin until we are holy and blameless. Think about this incredible love that Christ has for us. We ought to have that kind of love in response to Him. That ought to be the relationship between Christ and His church. And then our earthly marriages ought to be a picture of that relationship. That's the kind of faithfulness to which we're supposed to be clinging to our spouse. So as I said earlier, Thomas Watson said that a wise traveler, though many pleasant dishes are set before him at the inn, forbears to taste because of the reckoning. Likewise, we should avoid sexual sin because of the cost we will pay and because of the cost that others will have to pay. 
Outside of Christ, the cost will be the wrath of God. As I read earlier from Ephesians 5. In Christ, the cost is paid by Himself at Calvary. But would, is it a small thing to us to do the very thing which put Christ on the cross, which caused Him to pay that cost? And then I'd add to Thomas Watson that a wise traveler buys the best things that he can afford. It's foolish to willingly choose lesser food. And Christ is best. So think on Christ and let a new affection for Christ. Think even of His faithfulness to His bride in the new covenant. Think on Christ and let a new affection for Him expel thoughts of sexual immorality in your heart. Listen, here is God's grace to us, God's blessing, God's good gift to us. You can have your husband or your wife, as the case may be, and enjoy marital intimacy with him or her and have Christ. And so you can have the thing and that to which it points. But you can't have sexual immorality and Christ. So choose the better food. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And enjoy Him and His good gifts. And refuse to eat lesser food. Christ and His gifts are better than the forbidden pleasures of sexual sin.